1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell
0: for the Better Reading Podcast. Stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Gary Disher, welcome to Better Reading.
2: Great to be along here. Thank you.
0: Gary has published over 50 highly praised and wildly translated books in a range of genres, including crime thrillers, short story collections, YA and children's novels, and writer's handbooks. He's an experienced mentor and creative writing teacher. He has also toured in Germany and the United States, where his crime and YA novels have appeared on Best Book of the Year lists and won many awards. His newest book is Consolation. Welcome, Gary. I've been working in this industry for such a long time and I started as a bookseller on the shop floor many, many years ago and so I've been selling your books for some time but I think this is the first time that we've met.
2: It is, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So our listeners love to know how writers came to be and what really makes a writer. So tell me where it all started. Tell me where you grew up and how you came to writing.
2: I grew up in a wheat and wool country on a farm, a um, in the mid-north of South Australia, which is about halfway between Adelaide and the Flinders Ranges. It can be dry and look pretty arid in drought conditions, but really it's quite beautiful country. Uh, It still exerts a pull on my imagination. I often return there in my books, like Consolation, the book that's just come out. But I think growing up on a farm and with parents who love to read, uh, have a lot to do with it. I was a solitary child. I didn't see other kids after school or on weekends very often. And so I'd like to lose myself in a book. Mm -hmm. And there was the influence of my father who uh, didn't read to my siblings and I at bedtime, but told his own story. So I was seeing someone use their imagination from an early age to create another world. And so really from about the age of five, that's all I wanted to do was to be a writer.
0: I really love that your dad was doing that. I think one of the, the greatest pleasures that I have is is one being told stories, but the other being, even as an adult, I really enjoy being read to, you know. There's something very special about that. Do you think your dad was probably a secret aspiring writer?
2: Uh, I don't know. There, there was that quality in him. Uh, this was an era before television, uh, it was an era of uh, sitting around the kitchen table and talking. So he came. He came from an oral tradition. Mm. So that had a lot to do with it, I think. People back mm. then told each other stories. Mm. Uh, but uh, I feel my father died a year ago,
1: at I'm the age sorry. of
2: ninety-eight, and still physically okay and still mentally alert. And he he grew up during the Great Depression, left school at the age of twelve. You know, came from a poor, poor family. But he told me later in life that he would love to have been a doctor. He, he was a very intelligent man, uh, well-read but uneducated. Mm. But there was certainly that storytelling embedded in
0: him. Mm, I love that. So um, can you tell me what some of your favourite books were when you were five?
2: <laughs> oh, God knows what the, the ones were when I was five. But I can remember, though, at the age of 12, being frustrated with children's books and starting to read adult novels. There was no such genre as uh, young adult. Fiction back
0: then. Sorry to interrupt, but I was only just talking to an author about that recently, YA author. When I was on the shop floor, it was really either children's books or adult books. And if yeah. kids, you know, parents, a lot of parents used to come in looking for books for their children. And then for males, I mean, you know, and this is the way it was, and I'm not meaning to be sexist, but, you know, if they had a young boy that liked reading, it would be Tom Clancy. And if they had a girl that liked reading, it would be, I don't know, you know, Jackie Collins or whatever. But there wasn't that genre, and I think the YA genre came from reader demand, didn't it?
2: I think you you could be quite right, yeah. Uh, Advanced kids, and I think I was an advanced reader, were able to cope with adult books. But occasionally, of course, I'd I'd stumble upon passages in the book that left me quite bewildered, Mm. you know, sexual passages or whatever it might be. Mm. But um, there there certainly was a gap there that needed to be filled.
0: Mm. And we've um, certainly done it, haven't we? Because now it's such a thriving genre.
2: Yeah. Oh, and some of the best YA in the world is, comes, comes from Australia, I think. Mm-hmm. But back to the books that I liked as a child, not so much five years old, but later was the Enid Blyton, of course, and the famous Five and Secret Seven novels and uh, uh, the Biggles books. Oh, uh, yeah. So from an early age, really, I was reading Simple Adventures and that's perhaps influenced me in my crime writing.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So then you went to university?
2: Yeah, I did a BA degree at Adelaide University.
0: And, and thinking you're going to be a writer?
2: It was at the back of my mind all the time, yeah. Uh, but I was young and stupid and restless, so I didn't do much about it at the stage apart from trying to write short stories from time to time. I, uh, at the end of the BA, I, I taught part-time for a year and then traveled overseas for a couple of years When I came back, I moved to Melbourne to do a master's degree in Australian history. Of course, you don't need a a university degree to become a writer, but doing that history degree at Monash helped me in the sense that several of my non-crime books have been at a historical setting like the Second World War or the Great Depression. Um, But it was while I was doing the master's or when I should have been doing the master's that I was writing short stories and sending them to literary magazines. And the first story I ever sent out it uh, was published by Overland magazine, which is still going, mm. and I got a cheque for $100, incidentally, about a year later. But I thought, that's it, I'm a writer at last. Yeah. But- of course, the next few short stories were rejected by literary magazines, but that's how you start.
0: Yeah, it is how you start. I mean, I often, you know, we talk to writers here a lot and a lot of them talk to me about that's how their career started, about winning competitions or sending short stories to magazines. Um, yeah. And I think it is, it's a really good vetting kind of process in a way to, to start by doing that. And so when did you think about writing long-form fiction?
2: I've been thinking about it all the time. But um, I, at the end of my master's degree, I, I was very fortunate. I won a creative writing scholarship to Stanford University in California, so I was there for a year. Um, I was getting it instinctively right, getting short stories published or winning competitions, but didn't really know what I was doing in a craft right sense, how to use dialogue, the difference between the first-person point of view or the third-person point of view, all those craft issues that year at Stanford was terrific for that. And I wrote a lot of short stories that year that were workshopped by my class, and they were collected in a little little book called Approaches, which came was my first published book. But at roughly at the same time, an editor at Oxford University Press uh, asked me to write some Australian history textbooks for high schools. So the next two or three years I, I spent writing those history textbooks. But... Uh, had also made a start on my first novel and um, it was eventually published by Angus and Robertson. Uh, they rejected the first draft, but they said, if you'd like to rewrite it, we'd like to look at it again. And publishers never say that unless they mean it. So I did the rewrite and they published it. So that was. Did you get personal.
0: Did you get more guidance on what the rewrite might look like? Oh,
2: uh, there's a little bit of vague guidance yeah <laughs> right. but they must have, they must have liked what I did
0: because <laughs> I would think go oh, rewrite it means maybe write another book uh, so tell yeah. me about that experience so you'd written so it was tell me about your first book and and that ex, that experience of being published
2: well, it was an enormous thrill to me to get to get the acceptance letter of course um but the book is a bit different from the ones I usually write. There are two novels I've written, Sunken Road, which was republished last year by Text, uh, came out in 1996, and that first novel, um, right. Steal Away*. Steal Away*. Yeah. that's right. Too many of my books start with an S. Most fiction and most of the fiction I write is linear in structure. There's a beginning, a middle and an end, and the tro- time is chronological. But with Steal Away*, I tried... A different approach. I wrote the life story of a marriage uh, through little vignettes, tiny little encapsulated scenes. Some of them might only be a paragraph long, a quarter of a page long, for example. But the accumulated detail, you get a a, a picture of a life and uh, a slightly similar approach with the, the later novel too, The Sunken Road. But uh, most of my fiction is linear instruction. It starts at the beginning and finishes at the end.
0: Right. So with your first novel, so you set that, how did you track down publishers? Had you already...
2: I okay. had a fair idea of the main Australian publishers. For example, University of Queensland Press was doing great things back then. Mm-hmm. Alan and Unwin, uh, Angus and Robertson and a few like that. I, th- uh, I think I probably sent it to about six publishers and got five rejections and one maybe. So I followed up with the maybe. Mm. And after that, uh, my next two books were short story collections and then another novel, The, um, the Stencil Man. That grew out of my history research, incidentally. I, I went to the War Memorial when I was doing research on an Australian history textbook about daily life in the Second World War and found letters and diaries kept by Italian and German internees they lived in Australia for some time, considered themselves loyal Australians, but were suddenly seen as the, as the enemy aliens when the war broke out. So the, the heartache in their letters and their diaries got to me and I thought, I'd like to write about a man like this mm-hmm. who suddenly finds himself in an internment camp.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the difference between writing short stories and writing a novel.
2: Short, with short stories, a lot is implied. I like an an analogy of Ernest Hemingway's that a good short story is like an iceberg, that a one-tenth shows above the surface, but the nine-tenths that make it all matter are under the surface. And a carefully written short story will, through uh, character reactions, character dialogue, show you simmering feelings underneath or whatever it might be. So that's often how that short stories work. Uh, But I... I think probably I've carried over some of my short story skills into the novel writing. Another skill with short stories is economy of, of, of prose, of getting the information down briefly in simple, plain language. So I'm not a flowery writer. No. but I think I'm a very precise writer. Mm. And uh, so that I've carried that skill over into the novel writing. Mm. It, with novel writing, you, you've got the room, the time, the space to be a bit more expansive, to linger a little bit more, uh, to have more characters, for example. Like a, a, I used to tell my sh- short story writing students that ideally a short story's got very few characters, a short time frame, very few locations, preferably only one location. And it's a little moment in time. But with a novel, of course, you can be much more expansive than
0: that. Mm. I, I sometimes use short stories, a lot of the short stories I read. Uh, it's like a photograph. It's like looking at a photograph.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it just it captures a moment. Yeah. It does.
0: Yeah, it is like But
2: the moment has to come from somewhere. It implies what's happened beforehand and it implies a story going on beyond that point. Nothing's neatly wrapped up there's a sense of, of this story is going to continue in a yeah. changed form.
0: Mm, that sounds like your dad <laughs> telling <laughs> yeah. stories. Yes, yeah, it's like.
2: Clicking <laughs> yeah. okay. around, <laughs> around yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you've gone on to be, you know, a, a great writer. In terms of crime fiction, and this is my observation, you know, from being a bookseller and then I worked briefly in publishing and now running this fabulous community, crime for a long time belonged overseas in a way, you know, in terms of what people were reading. There were very few Australian crime writers. And when they were, they were male. Um, but really we were all reading the Michael Connollys of the world, if you like, um, yeah. and Lee Child and, and all those big ones. And it really has been a genre that's really come into its own um, in Australia in the last few years for both male and female crime writers. What do you think happened? What What's your perception of that?
2: I think a couple of things have happened. One is that the Australian reading public, the cultural cringe that stopped them from reading Australian stuff is disappearing. you know the idea that if it's Australian it, it can't be very good, really. So we won't publish an Australian crime writer, we won't read an Australian crime novel because it can't possibly very good, be very good compared to British or American crime fiction, but that that kind of feeling is going. I think also. Uh, people are appreciating that crime fiction is a lot more serious than is given credit for, that a crime novel is not just something you take to the holiday house and uh, uh, leave your fingerprints on it in sunblock and leave it behind. That a, cr- a good crime novel, uh, it tells us about the world we live in, it tells a story, it grapples with prevailing social tensions and those sorts of things. So, uh, so good crime fiction... and it can evoke place to me just vital element say, of fiction I writing was, is place.
0: absolutely i was about to say i think for me the greater sense of place is often found in a crime fiction novel yeah. and really like setting the tone is is crucial isn't it you know getting that yeah
2: um, when i taught creative writing my students seem to feel that the setting Is simply the backdrop for the action, that the setting didn't really matter. If you're having two people having an argument in a a lounge room, you have a TV in the corner and the table the dinner table is set for dinner, and that's good enough. But it's not that the setting can say something about the characters and about the plot and about the the element of tension in the air or whatever it might be. That the setting is a, a dynamic thing in in fiction and especially in crime fiction.
0: I often think it's a character in a way.
2: Yeah, it has a tone of personality. It it exerts a force, yeah.
0: Yeah, and one example of this, you know, I remember um, reading, um, it was a Swedish crime novel, I can't remember the title now, but of course it was set in in the snow and it was summer when I was reading it and I was freezing. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the mark of a good book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, when Um, they get... Get that right. You know, you really yeah. not that you are there in that place.
2: Um it it's been an uh, a, an element of interest to me in recent years. There's a a, a um, class of Australian crime writing called Outback Noir or Rural Noir. So we've had books like my own uh Bitterwash Road and and Um Peace, Peter Temple's The Broken Shore, Jane Harper's The Dry, Chris Hammers Scrublands set in dry, dusty, droughty places. Oh, well, not Peter Temple so much. It's a bit clichéd, though. So the novel of mine that's just come out, Consolation, is the third Hirsch novel set in the dry wheat and wool country in mid-north or South Australia, where I grew up, of course. So it, in my own little um, act of um, defiance, I've set this one in winter. So... There's lush grass everywhere. There's not a dust storm in sight. There's no drought in sight. There's even snow on the nearby hills. So
0: So there you go. Tell me then in terms of, I will get into this a little bit, the term, it never used to be a a genre for women really in Australia to write crime fiction. It was in the UK, um, but here it it took a, a long while, I think, for women to...
2: Yeah, some of the earlier writers had to send their novels to the UK.
0: Is that right? Tell me yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah.
2: Back in the, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. But then I think with the influence of people like Sarah Paretsky in the United States, women writers in Australia and Britain started to publish much more widely and be more accepted. Oh. And they, were, they had a crucial influence, I think, because the old style of uh, crime writing was like a Miss Marple where Miss Marple doesn't have a personality, she's just a reasoning machine, or the old style of private eye in Los Angeles with a bottle of scotch in his bottom drawer and a woman with big breasts walks in on the first page and says, I want you to find my missing husband. That was <laughs> what crime writing was. But then with people like Sarah Paretsky and uh, Morel Day and those who followed, that the, the main character of crime fiction now with someone like us, really, ultimately they step where we fear to, to tread. But you know, they've got messy love lives. They've got elderly mothers they're worried about. They've got a they've got a um, a circle of friends and acquaintances. Whereas these old um, New, uh, Los Angeles private eyes, they never seem to have elderly parents they were worried about, or brothers or sisters, or anything like that.
1: Mm-hmm. So it was a big
2: change in kind of fiction. I did a little bit of secondary early on, but I taught adults at TAFE College, Uh, mostly in um, a little bit of Australian history, but mostly in creative writing, professional writing at uh, TAFE. And I helped to design the professional writing course in the Victorian TAFE system. It's probably changed remarkably since then, but um, that was my teaching. And so I had motivated adults, which made all the difference. I didn't have surly kids.
0: No. So when we're talking about female fiction, female crime fiction and and, and male crime fiction, when you're teaching, do you reference that? You know, there is a difference. Uh, or there was a difference, I think.
2: Only in the sense of, of reader bias. Mm. Um, I tried to show them a, a, a wide range of fiction, in a short fiction in particular, from male and female writers, and we would just talk about the book, but I knew... But some of them would have, like male writers, and some, so male students, and probably some of the female students might too, might think, well, this is women's fiction; it doesn't interest me. But to me, that's a, an irrelevant sort of distinction to make.
0: Mm. I had a friend um, who's, a, a, you know, a, a great reader and loved crime fiction, but until recently, he had never read a female crime novel, and now-
2: yeah, I think that kind of bias still exists. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, one of my favourite uh, crime writers is Karen Slaughter, the American writer. Mm. So I've always read American. I've always read women and men, male and female writers. To me, there's no distinction between them.
0: A good story is a good story, right?
2: Yeah.
0: I, and I might have this wrong because it's just my point of view and and what I get from my reading community. But I feel that Gone Girl changed the landscape a little bit.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you think that? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, the depiction of who the bad guy is or yeah. bad
0: woman.
2: Yes. Yeah. And, and the psychological tension too, yeah.
0: And that unreliable narrative that, you know, when yeah. you're reading it, was it her or was it him? And yeah. you, know, you doubted almost everyone in the book. There wasn't a good guy, bad guy scenario.
2: Yeah, I, I like that notion of the unreliable narrator, certainly. Yeah. You don't know where you stand with these people.
0: It kind of, uh, you know, does your head in really, but it's compelling in that way that you just want a resolution at the end. Yeah, did you enjoy teaching?
2: I did for a few years, and then I was frankly, I was tired of reading bad writing.
0: Yeah, um, I, was I, going to I tell found
2: you. that with any class of 20, there'd only be one who had the skill, and even the skill's not enough, you also need a perseverance. Yeah. I had students who I thought were better writers than I was, and i urge them to send their short story out, if it's a story I admired, they'd get a rejection and they would leave the course and not only stop writing, well, yeah, they'd stop writing, but they'd also drop out of the course. So you need a thick skin, you need perseverance as well as, as the talent. Yeah, um, no,
0: I agree with that totally. Do you know what I also think with authors, and I, I'm sure I've said this before in the podcast, it, it is not an easy job if you want to call it that it's it's i I think you know you've got the craft definitely the skill as you say then you have got to come up with a story so there's a creative element and those two things you know have to work together and then you've got the discipline of writing and then you've got trying to get published and then you get published and everybody has an opinion
2: put it put it this way it it, is a long it's a long training i've been writing for over 40 years now, and it's only in recent years that I'm making a halfway decent living. Only in recent years that I've had a sense of a readership.
0: Do you think that's social media?
2: So Social media has probably had a lot to do with it, yeah. Mm. I, I see the importance of it. Mm. I was dragged kicking and screaming into a better website and using Facebook by my publisher.
0: Mm. I, I want to talk about that a little bit because that's what we do. You know, we're a social media book reading community. But I have really... Um, you know the avid readers the better reading readers but they really love that personal connection with the author and for some reason I don't know if it makes a difference to the story, but it extends their story in a way. And they just would like to know more. I mean, you know, I've had the same experience, you know, when you've discovered an author you love, like let's say E. McEwen or whatever, and you've read every single possible book you can read at the moment and you're just waiting for the next one. And then you want to find out more. So you find out more about the person and where he lives or where she lives and who they're married to, and, you know, whatever. And I think social media does that for readers. It gives them yeah. more about what they're, the stories that they love.
2: Yeah, it does, I think it can add something to the reading experience or add something to liking a writer and not knowing anything about them. Mm-hmm. Once you do, it, it, yeah, it rounds out the experience a little bit more. I mean, it's, it's said that you should pay no attention to a writer's personality or where they live or what experiences they had growing up. All that matters is the book. But I don't think that applies really. You can't escape. You can't uh, de- um, split the, the book and the writer in many instances.
0: I guess you can't. I mean, there are some writers that you think maybe you shouldn't have come out and spoken to us. <laughs> um, and they're, they're very famous uh, grumpy writers in mm. Australia and I guess all over the world. But sometimes you can have that completely opposite view. I mean, I enjoy meeting writers, but I, I like to buy, um, I really like Australian art and photography. And I often don't want to meet the creator because my relationship is with the piece of art if you like yeah, you
2: know? yeah
0: there is that as well isn't there
2: yeah
0: because it's how you capture that experience in your own imagination and you don't want that tainted yeah i guess that's why so many stories uh, are translated you know the stories that are translated into film so many of them are disappointments because they're not how you imagine them right
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. You've conjured up a world in your head.
0: And you know exactly what the character looks like. And, of course, yeah. on the screen, he doesn't look anything <laughs> no. like that. Um, okay, so tell me about uh, Consolation.
2: Well, first of all, uh, it's the third in a series. The first was Bitterwash uh, Bitterwash Road. The second one was Peace, which came out a year ago. This is Consolation. And the energy behind the three books is the fact that a young detective, Adelaide detective, was caught up in a corrupt suburban CIV squad and the squad was disbanded. Some of the members went to jail. One of them committed suicide. And Hirsch, some of the mud stuck to him, even though he was only a junior and he didn't really do anything wrong. Some of the mud stuck to him. So he was uh, no longer uh, allowed to be a detective. He was busted down to uniform and sent to a little one, one officer police station in, in the mid-north of South Australia in the bush. And these places still exist. So I visually, in my imagination, it's where I grew up. It's the towns that I knew from that from that period. If anyone knows the town of Burra, a lovely old copper mining town settled by the Cornish, but now a, a lovely pastoral area, it's near there. That's where I went to high school. So Hirsch is a fish out of water, really. He's got this de- these detective skills, though, so that in when he stumbles upon a crime and he's bound to because he's always on the road in his four-wheel drive, he's always going to outback uh, sheep stations to see that the people are okay, checks on a widow here who's got a a schizophrenic son, an elderly widower there, that sort of thing. So he stumbles upon crime and sometimes they're serious crimes and, of course, he gets elbowed aside when the hotshot Adelaide detectives come in to investigate the murder that... That's part of the appeal of these books. He's two things. He's He has to learn about the crime, but he also has to learn about the landscape because he's a city boy. And that's where some of the energy of the books come from, the fact that he's a fish out of water. Because he doesn't know how country towns work, how farming districts work, he's he's not used to rough outback roads and getting bogged or whatever it might be, or dealing with a bushfire or... Uh, so, he's trying to learn the landscape at the same time as he's trying to learn the circumstances of a serious crime. In the first one, book, for example, there's a suspicious suicide and a young girl found it by the side of the road had been clearly a hit and run death. So, they're not outlandish, these sorts of deaths. they they the sort of thing that a country cop might come up upon. And I'm interested too, because he's a country cop dealing with all kinds of things he has to be a police officer he has to be a counselor he has to be a friend uh he has to be a guide to misspent use and all those sorts of things so he he has to be an all-rounder and he's at the same time trying to feel at home in a place where he doesn't really belong yet the first two books are set in dryish dusty summer conditions uh the third consolation is set in midwinter yeah
0: and uh you really um you know you nail know, like, it. of course you do you, you absolutely get the sense of place and i think he also has to learn about community as well like you know living in the city versus living in the country it's different community as well the stories are beautifully told the backdrops are always just gorgeous and what i like about them is that they're they're small stories but bigger problems if you like you know yeah. which is i think is is the mark in good storytelling gary we've run out of time but thank you so much I I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. I've been wanting to meet you for such a long time, so it's been such a thrill. Thank you.
2: Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to brag.
0: (laughs) It's a pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook
1: or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.